You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're continuing our series this morning through this letter called Gospel Culture in God's Household. And today uh, and next Sunday, we'll be examining the important topic of Christian leadership. This morning, we'll be looking specifically at pastoral leadership. And there's a difference between leadership and pastoral leadership. All pastors are leaders, but not all leaders are pastors. Already this morning, we have been led by our worship team. Uh, We've been led by our pastoral assistant as he has introduced us to Cross Trainers Ministry. We are led by people who are in charge of building maintenance and uh, post-COVID era, our children's programs and our young adults ministry. We're led by all these people and yet none of them are pastors. They have the gift of leadership given to them by the spirit for the good of the church, but they do not have the pastoral gift. The questions we want to answer today are, what are pastors? And why has God given pastors to the church? And most importantly, perhaps, what are the qualifications that distinguish a man from being a pastor or not being a pastor? These are crucial questions. Because if we are left on our own assessment of who should be a pastor and who shouldn't, we would likely look for all the wrong things. We'd be asking whether he went to the right seminary. We'd be asking whether he has a established, successful track record of success. We'd be asking ourselves whether he is just interesting to listen to. Our text today tells us that being a pastor has more to do with who he is than what he does his character than his giftings, his private life than his public persona. Gifting does matter. Don't get me wrong. A a man can't serve as a pastor if he can't lead and he can't teach. But if he doesn't have the right character, it doesn't matter how gifted he may be. He will not pastor the church well. You can imagine gifts as being like tools. If they're used improperly, They will destroy what you're trying to build. But if they're used the way that they were meant to, you can build something beautiful with them. The church doesn't just need more gifted people. The more powerful the tool you use, the more efficient the destruction if you don't learn how to wield them. The church needs the right tools and the church needs the right men. And we will discover what that means today. So I'll be reading 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. You can follow, up, follow along in your Bibles. I'll be reading from the ESV, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. This is the word of the Lord. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, 
He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The title of this sermon is The Noble Pastor. The Noble Pastor. We're gonna have three points today. First, the calling, verse one. Second, the qualifications, verses two and three. And third, the testing grounds, verses four to seven. Let's look at our first point today, the calling. Now, verse one begins with what should be a familiar phrase by now. It says, the saying is trustworthy. This is the second of three trustworthy sayings in 1 Timothy. And what these were, uh, or what these are, are common sayings that were in the early church that Paul had heard and that he decided to put his apostolic stamp of approval upon. They're short phrases that Paul wanted the first Christians to repeat over and over amongst themselves because they reflect the values that he wants the church to have. You might remember the first trustworthy saying that we examined a few weeks ago. That was back in chapter one, verse 15. Paul said, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That is one of the strongest signs in the New Testament that the church was always meant to have a gospel-centered culture. The early Christians were meant to remind themselves daily as individuals and as a community that they were great sinners saved by a great savior. They're always to to remember more to focus on their own sins than on the sins of others. To remember that whenever they walked into a room, they were the greatest sinner present. And that Jesus Christ, he came into the world not to save the righteous, not to save the good, not to save the occasional sinners, but to save the foremost of sinners to restore them to himself through his death on the cross. Now, the second trustworthy saying is found in in verse one in our text today. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, what does this phrase mean and why was it so important that, that Paul would identify it as a trustworthy saying? Well, to begin with, we need to understand that when Paul talks about overseers here, he's talking about pastors. Okay, if you look at the main text in scripture, 1 Peter chapter 5, Titus chapter 1, Acts chapter 20, about the pastoral office, you'll see that the scriptures use three different words to, to describe one office. Okay, pastors are described as shepherds, which Uh, really just means pastor. Pastor means shepherd. They're described as shepherds. They're described as elders. And they're described as overseers. Three different words to describe one office. And each of those titles reflects a different function of pastors, but they all refer to the same role within the church. Now, we don't know exactly why Paul felt the need to identify this as a trustworthy saying, but we may uh, guess It may have been because no one wanted to become a pastor. People were saying, hey, you know, pastors, I've seen what happens to them. They tend to go to jail. They tend not to make much money. 
They don't get much social status. Uh, I don't want to do that. I'd rather approach uh, another job that's going to pay me better and that's going to keep me and my family safe. Whatever the reason, Paul found it necessary to remind them that the pastor's task is a noble task. It's noble work. It's not embarrassing work. It's not shameful work. It is noble work. And I wonder, do we believe that today? Or have we fallen into perhaps the the world's way of thinking and assessing what jobs are worth pursuing? I remember when I was in my early 20s and I first started talking to people around me about my desire to be a pastor. And uh, I received some encouragement, but it was largely by people who were already in Christian ministry. The vast majority of the responses that I received as I talked about this was, was, are you sure you wanna do that, Josh? You know, why would you be a pastor? Why would you fundraise your salary? You know, why would you lower yourself to doing something like that when you could become like an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer? Well, some of you may know I ended up becoming a lawyer on the way to becoming a pastor, so I guess I'm a bit of a people pleaser. But, you know, that way of thinking assumes that the value of our work depends on the money that we can make. And based on that metric, pastoring falls pretty low on the hierarchy of jobs that are worth pursuing. But our text today challenges us to consider not just what is profitable, but to consider what is noble. Work that is noble, work that is dignified, work that is excellent and praiseworthy, not just work that leads to selfish gain. There are many noble things that we can do with our lives. We heard a lot about noble work from Jody and Patty earlier. Verse one tells us that one of the noble things that we can do with our lives is pastoring. Pastoring is a noble task. It is a high calling. It is an office that deserves our highest respect. But how do you discern whether you're being called to this noble task? You know, you might imagine that it should be something dramatic. You know, lightning falling from the sky or a a supernatural vision that you have when you're dreaming or a prophetic word that someone comes, that someone gives to you unexpectedly. Well, you might be disappointed by this, but the Bible's answer is much more mundane. Verse one simply says that it begins with a desire for it. If anyone aspires to the office of Orzir, he he desires a noble task. It begins with desire. The word desire there can also be translated as long for or set the heart upon. This, This word desire is actually the same word used in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus is talking about lust. It's it's a burning passion for something. It's, It's not kind of a passing fancy. It's not a a whimsical idea. It is an unavoidable sense of longing and desire and calling to devote your life to shepherding God's people. And so if a man is to become a pastor, he must desire it. It doesn't end with desire. That's not sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient. And I fear that sometimes we actually go the opposite extreme and say, well, you know, as long as someone wants to become a pastor, we don't want to discourage that. Uh, we, we have so few men to begin with. If someone desires it, goes to seminary, of course, we're going to make them a pastor. 
But as we will see, it goes much further than subjective desire. Your subjective desires have to be confirmed by objective evaluation. But it does begin with desire. If you don't have the desire for it, then you're not called to it. But what is a man called to do? If he does have this calling on his life to be a pastor, what is he called to do? Well, there isn't much in our text about this because as I've already mentioned, this text spends far more time talking about who he must be than what he must do. And that is instructive for us because we tend to look at giftings, we look at experience, we look at vision, and we don't look at character. But the Bible calls us to focus more on character than anything else. But if we look at our text and we we start Uh, examining it carefully, looking at the inferences it makes, we can actually make a number of observations about the pastor's role. First of all, he is to exercise spiritual oversight in the church. I mean, that's implied in his title, right? Overseers are called overseers because they oversee things. They, They look out upon the spiritual health of the church. They keep a watchful eye on how people are doing spiritually. They look out for false teaching. They're looking out for unrepentant sin. God has given pastors the sacred responsibility to protect, nourish, and lead his people. That's a tremendous responsibility. And it is one that every pastor, and every man who, who feels called to pastor would do well to remember. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give in account. There is coming a day when God himself will call pastors to give an account. And by giving an account, it doesn't mean you know, how many baptisms did you have in 2020 or how many programs did you run and implement and start through your years of pastoral ministry It doesn't refer to things like that. It refers to whether he faithfully kept watch over the souls of those who were entrusted to his care. Pastors must exercise oversight. Second, verse two says that he must be able to teach. You look at this list of qualifications, all of them relate to character. This is the one qualification that leads, that that relates to gifting, his ability. He must be able to, to teach. Now, as we noted a couple weeks ago, when the New Testament uses the word teach, it doesn't just refer to the ability to pass on knowledge or skills. It's not just talking about whether you can teach any, just any subject. Teaching refers to the authoritative transmission of the apostolic doctrine. It's, it's the teaching of sound doctrine. It's the faithful proclamation of the gospel. It's the ability to expound the whole counsel of God as revealed in the Old and the New Testaments and show how they point to Christ and how it impacts our lives. Now, this ability to teach presupposes the ability to learn. This man, he must be a student of God's word. He must labor hard in the study. He must learn and increase in his ability to rightly handle the word of truth. He must devote himself to study and preparation and to the careful application of God's word to God's people. He must possess and grow in theological discernment to identify false teaching and harmful worldly ways of thinking that have seeped into the church. 
and learn how to counter it with the scriptures. In the parallel passage in uh, the letter to Titus, uh, again, talking about pastoral qualifications, Paul writes that pastors must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he must oversee, he must be able to teach. Third, third, he is to care. He is to care. That's implied in verse five when Paul writes, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care? How will he care for God's church? Now, this word seems simple. You know, we know what caring looks like, but when we consider when this word is used elsewhere in the New Testament, what we find is the only other context where this word is used is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, you remember that story where Jesus says that a a Jewish man is lying on the side of the road. He's beaten up, he's robbed, he's left for dead. And a Samaritan walks by and he doesn't just slip $5, you know, under his body. You know, he, he binds up his wounds. He, he, he treats the wounds by, by pouring wine on it. And then he lifts the man onto uh, the Samaritan's animal and then he leads him to an inn. And then he, he takes him to the innkeeper and he pays his way and he takes care of him. And it all began with a heart of compassion and love for neighbor, which of course is what that parable is about. Pastors are called to do the same thing within the church. They're required to have compassion for those who are suffering. They're required to love those they come across. They're called specifically, this says, that he is called to care for God's church. He's meant to love the men and the women and the children that God has put him over as the overseer. A pastor must love his church. There's nothing more important than that. And the only way for a pastor to love his church is if he remembers who they belong to. They belong to God. Verse five says that he is to care for God's church, not his church, not my church, but God's church. This is a sacred stewardship that God has given to pastors to watch over, to care for, to teach people who are precious to him, people who are redeemed by the blood of his very own son. Pastors care for God's very own children because God's church, as we've reflected often in this series so far, God's church reflects, represents God's household. A pastor loves his church because the church is made up of God's very own children. And that means that he must care for them with a special kind of love and devotion. He feeds them with the food of the word. He binds up their broken hearts and he carries them to their savior. Pastors are called to oversee, teach, and care. He may have other tasks that fit within these three headings. Like you can imagine leadership training, you know, raising up new leaders, which is actually a pastoral task we see in 2 Timothy chapter two. We can see that as fitting within oversight. He can't just think about the present, he has to think about the future, about who's gonna lead the church in the future. Or we might put prayer under the heading of care. One of the best ways that pastors can care for people is by praying for them and praying with them. But when you boil down pastoral work to its essence, 
oversight, teaching, and care. And each of them informs how the others are to be practiced. You know, a pastor's oversight is not meant to be the oversight of a CEO who is managing people to maximize the profit for the company. It's not meant to be the oversight of a general, a military general who is concerned about subordination and order. The, the, the pastor's oversight is meant to be that of, of loving care, the loving care of a shepherd who is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. It's no wonder that Paul calls pastoring a noble task. But who is this task for? After all, a noble task requires a noble man. Desire is important, but it's not sufficient. A man's subjective calling must be confirmed by objective evaluation. And that leads to our second point, the qualifications. Now, if you look at our text, this list of, of several different qualifications, what, what, you'll, what you should notice first is that none of these qualities are exclusively reserved for pastors. In fact, they should all be true of every Christ-following believer. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospital, I could, hospitable. I could give you a list of verses that show how every Christian is meant to be called to these virtues. So when Paul says that a, a pastor shouldn't be a drunkard, the implication we should take from that isn't that Christians who aren't pastors can be drunkards. Okay? Likewise, when it says that they should be gentle, Paul's not saying that every Christian who's not a pastor can be angry at everybody all the time because they're not pastors. Okay? That's not what these verses are saying. Instead, what Paul is saying is that the, 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 the life that every Christian is called to pursue, every single Christian, whether they're pastors or not pastors, are meant to be exemplified best by their pastors. Pastors are to be exemplary Christians who do not just lead by what they say, but what they do and by how they live. You know, Charles Spurgeon, writing to a group of pastors, said, men do not read the Bible, but they read us. Let us give them a good version of the scriptures in our lives. So what is this good version of the scriptures meant to look like in the life of a pastor? Well, Paul begins in verse two by saying that pastors must be above reproach above reproach. His life must not attract shame. He must not live in such a way that people shake their heads at him. And they say, what? He, he's a pastor? Give me a break. What, what has the church come to? There shouldn't be any glaring deficiencies in his character. He should have a good reputation as a man who lives according to these qualifications because if he doesn't, he will not only attract reproach, and shame to his own name, but to the name of God's church. Now, let's not over-apply this. Paul isn't saying that pastors must be held to a standard of sinlessness. The pastors must be perfect. In fact, he, he uses the same word here for above reproach. Later on in chapter five, when he's describing Christian women, actually Christian widows who had lost their husbands and who are seeking to qualify for financial support from the church. Okay, so this isn't just a standard that pastors are held to. It's, it's a standard that applies in other contexts as well. Above reproach doesn't mean perfection. It means that one's life reflects the, the moral and spiritual integrity 
of a mature believer. Paul then says that he must be the husband of one wife. Literally, a one woman man. Okay, he must be a one woman man. He must only have eyes for his wife. This isn't talking about polygamy, okay? There's no evidence in the historical record that, that polygamy, that is one man marrying several women, was a widespread practice in first century Roman Empire, okay? Uh, this, is, this is talking about whether a man is fully devoted to his wife or whether he has eyes for others, whether he has concubines or mistresses on the side or perhaps he just has a wandering eye and he is longing for the company of other women. To be a one-woman man is to live your life in such a way that your wife has no questions about your full devotion to her. Now, this doesn't mean that single men can't be pastors. Paul was single, and he was the finest pastor, you could say, who ever lived, aside from Jesus himself. But it does mean that if a man is married, he is totally devoted to his wife. Because if he can't be faithful to his bride, how can he be faithful to the bride of Christ? His heart must be pure. His integrity must be intact. And his eyes must be careful where they wander. The next three qualifications all relate to his inner character. Verse two says that he must be sober minded. And that, that means that his, his mind, his thinking is not clouded by unspiritual worldly things. He is alert in his thinking. His mind isn't immersed and distracted by entertainment, excessive entertainment, you should, I should say. He's not filling his mind with worldly concerns or being dragged to and fro by cultural trends. He, he's not easily led astray by false teaching. Instead, his, his mind is clear and it's full of God's truth. Likewise, he must be self-controlled. He must have control over his impulses, his sinful tendencies. He, he must excel, you could say, in, in self-mastery. He doesn't live impulsively. He lives purposefully. He uses his time well. He is disciplined and he's able to say no when his will is led to do something that might tempt him to sin. Now this leads him to be respectable as people watch the clarity of his thinking, his devotion to his wife and to his marriage and to the sound doctrine of God's word. They can't help but respect him for the way that he conducts himself. Now, the next five qualifications relate to how he interacts with others. The first one says that he must be hospitable. He must be hospitable. His, his home must be open because his heart is open to those who are around him. There, there is no part, no space, no corner of his life that is reserved for him and for him alone. Every part of his life is devoted to loving people to the glory of God. He doesn't separate his days into neat and tidy categories of, of work and leisure because he, he brings the people he serves into his personal life. He must be able to teach. 
We've already given some thought to this. But commenting on these verses, John Calvin, he writes, it is not enough to have profound learning if it be not accompanied by talent for teaching. Yes, a pastor must be a studious man. He must have a good grasp of theology. He must spend much time in the study reading and and growing in his knowledge of God's word. But, But if he can't bring that into the congregation in a way that makes sense, in a way that applies to people's lives, in a way that perhaps even children can understand, he, he does not have the ability to teach. Lofty thoughts are useless if no one can reach them but him. Now, verse three says that he must not be a drunkard. He doesn't get drunk. I mean, what else can I say about that? He doesn't go to parties and let loose. And neither does he expose himself to harmful substances in private that will limit his inhibition and cloud his judgment and compromise his ability to be sober-minded. Instead, he maintains a a self-controlled dignity wherever he goes and whatever he might be going through. The next one says he's not violent, but gentle. He's not violent, but gentle. He doesn't throw things around. He doesn't, he doesn't lead by, by raising his voice and bullying people into submission. Instead, he, he's gentle. His, his speech and his life, the way that he responds to insults and to the weakness of sinners, he, he responds with gentleness and patience. Now, let's be clear here about what gentleness is. Gentleness does not mean soft, It does not mean lacking in conviction. Gentleness does not mean I'm just gonna please everybody. Jesus, as we saw last Sunday, he calls himself gentle and lowly. And yet he wasn't afraid to call the Pharisees a brood of vipers. He wasn't afraid to enter the temple and overturn the tables of the money changers. To be gentle is not to be lacking in conviction. Instead, to be gentle is to deal patiently with the weak. To be gentle is to have compassion for struggling sinners. To be gentle is to be slow to anger and quick to listen. There is a quiet strength to gentleness that isn't easily shaken. The next quality is related. It says he must not be quarrelsome. He's not known to pick fights with people. He's not, his life isn't characterized by conflict. He he wisely discerns when to speak and when to listen. He knows when to confront and when to back away. His desire is to be a peacemaker, to diffuse a difficult situation. There's a lot here to be said about how we tend to use social media. You know, a a non-quarrelsome man isn't looking to pick fights on social media. He's not eager to demonstrate his intellectual superiority. Instead, he engages others thoughtfully and graciously. And he never forgets that the people who disagree with him are people whom he is called to love. The last qualification in verse three is that he must not be a lover of money. Not a lover of money. In other words, he can't be in the ministry for his own selfish gain. He's not always on the lookout for the next raise or the next promotion or the the, the higher paying job. He's not motivated by money. Instead, he is content 
to serve where God has placed him and to provide what he and his family need. That's what the noble pastor looks like. And more briefly, the final question for us today is how does a church discern whether a man meets these qualifications? You know, do we just, can we, can we do it based on the basis of three interviews? Like, well, we can check these qualifications off because he's a nice guy. You know, how, how are these qualifications to be tested? And that leads to our third point. Our text today says that there are three contexts in which a man must be tested. The first is his own household. We see that in verses four to five. If a man is to be faithful in the church, he must first be faithful in his home. If he is married, he must love his wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. He must nourish and cherish her as his own body. And if he is a father, he must raise his children the way that God raises his children, which includes keeping us submissive to him. Now, when we read that phrase, keeping his children submissive, we might hear that as reflecting an authoritarian nature and ordering around in the house. You know, raised voices and discipline and all that. And it could very well become that. But that's, not, listen, this is, this is not how biblical authority is meant to be exercised. Biblical authority is never authoritarian. It is not overbearing and domineering. Instead, it is meant to be characterized by all the qualities that we see in our text today. It is not violent, but gentle. It is self-controlled. It is not quarrelsome. It is expressing a heart of care that comes out of a heart of love for those that you are leading. And that's why Paul writes that pastors must keep their children submissive, listen, with all dignity, with all dignity, the same sober-mindedness, the same self-control that makes a man respectable in the church ought to characterize his conduct in the home. Second testing ground, time. Verse six says he must not be a recent convert. He must not be a recent convert because there is no substitute for time. The test of time. You remember what Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter seven, the parable of the soils. The seed is the word of God. It's going into all these different kinds of soil. You remember uh, the seed that falls on the rocky ground, right? It springs up quickly. And it it reflects the, the person who responds to the word of God with joy. But then Jesus says in times of testing, They shrivel up and fade away because they didn't have any roots. There's no substitute for the test of time. Time to mature, time to grow, time to be tested by the trials of suffering. Seeds need time before they bring a harvest. Trees need time to bear fruit. Infants need time to to grow up and learn how to walk. And men who are to be pastors need time to mature before they're ready to enter into the ministry. Verse six says that if we ignore the test of time, the consequences can be devastating. He says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit. He'll have a big head, but a small heart. He'll become self-serving rather than self-giving. 
You know, at our church, we wanna raise up leaders. We are passionate about training up the next generation. My, my standing here preaching the word is a reflection of that value in our church. When Pastor Tim Kerr, who started our church 16 years ago, passed on this pulpit and this leadership, this oversight over this church to me when he was still in his prime. We must train up leaders, but we must do so with patience and discernment, not avoiding the test of the home and the test of time. We need the right men. And sometimes the only thing that will produce the right men is time. The third testing ground is the unbelieving world. Verse seven says, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Outsiders meaning non-Christians, people who aren't part of the church, they're outside of the church. He must be well thought of by them. And that of course implies that he's spending time with them. He, he, he has friends who are not Christians and they think highly of him. They, they respect him. They like him. Now, this doesn't mean that he must be well thought of by everyone because there will always be people who hate Christians because they hate the gospel. That was Paul's experience. But in general, as Christians live, as mature Christians live before a watching world, that world will respect us as people who are hardworking, responsible citizens, people who are people of their word, who keep their promises, who are people of integrity, people who are raising good families, people who are characterized by a humble joy and a graciousness to everyone that they come across. Men who would be pastors must be tested in the home, over time, and in the world. That's the only way that a church can discern his true character. One final point before we end with some application. It's no coincidence that in verses six and seven, there's a strong emphasis on spiritual warfare. Verse six warns that he may fall into the condemnation of the devil, that his conduct will give the devil ammunition to bring before God, to accuse him of. Verse seven says that he may fall into a snare of the devil, a trap set by our enemy, our eternal enemy for his shame and for the disgrace of Christ's name. The devil wants to get all of us, but sometimes in order to do that, he targets the shepherds. Because when you strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter. Philip Ryken writes, when a minister is disgraced, his ministry is disgraced. That is a sober reminder that a man can devote his entire life to doing what is noble, applying his life to what is good, to caring for the church, and then have it all come crumbling down because of one serious slip up, one character deficiency, one area of unaddressed sin. I think we all know this, but when temptation knocks at our doors, when temptation knocks at the door even of a pastor, his giftings will not help him at all. He can't lead or teach himself out of it. The only shield that he has when temptation comes will be a godly character that has been refined by the Spirit. And so, today, is there anyone here who aspires to one day serve as a pastor? 
Well, if you do, I want you to know that pastoring is a noble task. It's not an easy one. Sometimes it's not a very rewarding one. But it is a noble task to oversee God's household, to teach God's word, and to care for God's own children. If you aspire to one day serve as a pastor, my exhortation to you and the exhortation of our text today is to cultivate your character. You know, don't just read up on the latest theological trends. Don't just polish off the five points of Calvinism. You know, work on your heart. Watch your life. Truth is nothing without love. Doctrine is nothing without godliness. If you want to be a pastor, you must learn how to wage war against your sin. You must learn to, to deal gently with those who disagree with you or perhaps are critical of you. You must learn to raise a family with all dignity, that your home would be a happy place, that when you're practicing hospitality, inviting people into your home, they're, they're entering a happy place where the children are, are offering willing, joyful submission to mommy and daddy because they know that they're loved. You must learn to be self-controlled in all that you do whether it be what you eat or what you watch, you must learn to be a one-woman man. To be devoted to your wife and making her feel that she is the only woman who matters in your life and that nothing is more precious to you than her. For those of you who do not believe that you will ever be pastors, now you may be tempted to write off these verses and say, well, I can just avoid, ignore these verses because I'm not a pastor. I don't need to meet these qualifications. Well, don't do that because these virtues are for all of us. These verses aren't so much a description of the pastor as they are a description of the mature believer. If churches were filled with men and women who looked like this, oh, the church would flourish. The church would grow. The church would be healthy. But in order for that to happen, we do need pastors. Pastors are, are the gift of Christ to his beloved bride. And so we need faithful, godly men who have devoted their lives to this noble task and to these noble virtues. So pray for pastors. Pray for the pastors you know. Pray for the pastors to be. And Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. My friends, perhaps we have not because we ask not. Let us obey the command of our Lord Jesus Christ to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Lastly, let's not miss the most important part, point of all, which is what these verses reveal about the heart of God himself. God wants pastors like this because they reflect his heart for his people. You remember what God says in Jeremiah chapter three? He says, I will give you shepherds, pastors after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. My friends, God wants pastors to be gentle because he is gentle with us. He wants pastors to be hospitable because he has welcomed us into his home. He wants pastors to be the husband of one wife because of Christ's love for his bride, the church. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. He took our sins upon himself. He bore our penalty. He reconciled us to the Father so that we could know him as our shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the noble pastor, the one who laid down his life for the sheep. And may he, may he the good shepherd, the noble pastor, give churches, give our church shepherds after his own heart for the glory of his name and for the good of his church. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your word today, recognizing how far short we fall of these standards, but finding comfort in knowing that not only has Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, but he has given us power by his spirit to live this way. And so we pray that this would increasingly characterize our lives as believers. And for anyone here who is not a believer, who looks at this and says, I could never live this kind of life, I pray that you would draw them to Christ, that they would know Christ as their Savior and Lord, and know that the gift of salvation is not reserved for the righteous, but is given freely to sinners. And we pray, Father, we, act, we pray earnestly that you would send out laborers into your harvest field from our church. Oh, Father, may we be so bold as to ask that from our church, we would raise up faithful, noble pastors who would teach what is right and live the right way. May you do that for the sake of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.